And this morning, we come to the end of that chapter and to uh, really the, the peak of the mountain, in my opinion, of the beauty of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we're going to consider uh, this text together. So if you would, if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word out of reverence for Jesus, for his revelation to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Can you believe we have the word of God? Can you believe that God has revealed himself to us so that we might know not just, not just truths and facts about him, but so that we might know him? What a gift. What a kindness the word of God is. And may he write its truth upon our hearts as we consider it together. Amen. You may be seated. This text puts forward for us a question for our consideration this morning. And the question is very simple. It's not hard to find. It's not hidden or buried deep within the recesses of these words. It's a very simple question. And the question is this. How do we not lose heart when we are outwardly wasting away? Another way to phrase that question would be, where do we find hope to continue When the reality of our frailty hits home, what do we do with our suffering? What do we do? I read a story recently of uh, a Subway sandwich shop in Coventry, Rhode Island, where there was a failed robbery attempt. Apparently, according to the reports and the security footage that was made available, uh, uh, a heavyset man in his mid-40s went into the Subway, and he had a white t-shirt on his head that he was wearing as a hat, and like a gray plastic grocery bag as a fake beard. Sounds kind of sketchy. Anyway, he went into this subway and he approached the two teenagers who were working behind the counter and he said, give me all the money in the cash register. And so the the teenagers, sort of taken aback by this man's appearance, did something that I think is pretty brilliant. They just flat ignored him. So he kept asking and they just kept on about their business. And eventually he got agitated and muttered to himself and left. Who, Who would have thought that would work, right? Just ignore him and he'll go away. Maybe that's a strategy we should employ in the midst of our suffering when we're confronted with our frailty. That's a strategy, certainly, and one that people who don't really understand what we believe might suggest is the strategy that we have. Christians, they just, they just deny the reality that life is hard. They pretend everything's fine. But that's not how Scripture deals with our suffering, and that's not how we're called to deal with it either. Last week, we began to see some of the Apostle Paul's perspective on suffering. Earlier in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Paul said these words. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I love this, and I hope you do too. Paul acknowledges and deals directly with the reality of affliction and hardship and suffering. But at the same time, when he looks at it, he looks at it with the eyes of faith to behold the power and the presence of Jesus that shines brightly in the midst of our sufferings. Last week, Pastor Dave put it uh, so succinctly and so, so helpfully. The formula is this. It's my weakness plus God's power equals God's glory. My weakness plus God's power equals God's glory. And that message is at the very heart of the book of 2 Corinthians. And in our text this morning in verses 16 through 18, Paul is continuing on the same theme. And in these three verses, Paul is going to do something that I think is monumentally important for us and monumentally helpful for us in our Christian life. He is going to, in these three verses, deconstruct three lies that we are tempted to believe in suffering. And he's going to deconstruct those lies so that he can reconstruct in their place a true vision for the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus. So that that vision of Jesus will enable us, no matter what we face, to not lose heart, to endure, to persevere in the midst of hardship and suffering. So three lies Paul is going to take apart for us, one in each verse. In verse 16, lie number one, as long as I'm strong, I'm okay. In verse 17, line number two, as long as I'm not suffering, I'm okay. And in verse 18, line number three, the Apostle Paul will deconstruct for us, as long as I'm seeing, I'm okay. We're going to walk through these verses one at a time to see how Paul breaks down these lies so that he might replace each one with the beautiful truth in this text. Here's, here's our point. Here's the big idea. The truth is this, if I have Jesus, I'm okay, and I won't lose heart. So let's look at these verses together. The first lie Paul wants to deconstruct is, as long as I'm strong, I'm okay. Paul's keeping it pretty real in chapter 4. He says it very plainly, very bluntly, outwardly we are wasting away. And you don't need to be a theologian on the caliber of the Apostle Paul to know that that's true. The world knows that. We understand that. Inherently, we get that we are wasting away. I was driving down Capitol Circle a few uh, weeks ago, and I saw a billboard advertising memberships for Gold's Gym. And the tagline on it was, Get back to your glory days. Get back to your glory days, just like that. Just sign up for your membership, and you're in. Sounds nice, doesn't it? There's a, there's a profound truth that, that's implicit in that advertisement. And that truth is this. In a human sense, your glory days, your, your best days and mine, they're behind us. They're in the rearview mirror. Our bodies are wasting away. We're getting old. We're breaking down. That's true for all of us. We're all on this journey toward decay together. You know, I've been doing, uh, doing CrossFit workouts recently. I know it, there's no need for me to tell you that. I mean, just look at me. Um, and I wanted to really earn my Thanksgiving celebration on Thursday. So on Wednesday, I got together with, uh, with Craig, and we did, uh, we did a really rigorous CrossFit workout. That was four days ago. I'm still sore. Guys, I'm in agony up here. Pray for me. I am so sore from that workout still four days later because I'm getting old. I'm wasting away. It's happening. That's what aging does to all of us. 
Over time, we, we start to not move quite as fast as we used to. We start to, re, to take a little bit longer to recover than we used to. We're wasting away. One of my favorite books in the Bible is, is Ecclesiastes. It helps keep me dialed in to, uh, to, to, to the meaninglessness of life apart from God. And there's this beautiful, artful picture of, of what aging does to us at the end of that book in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I want to walk through these verses with you as, as the teacher describes for us what it's like to age and to decay. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He's talking about aging. He's talking about growing old. He's exhorting us to worship and serve God in our younger days before we get old. And that service and that worship gets really difficult. Verse 2, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. The keepers of the house, it's a metaphor for your hands who watch over you and keep you safe. Your hands begin to tremble and shake as you age. And the strong men are bent it's your legs, your strong legs that move you and support you. They don't support you quite like they used to as you age. And the grinders cease because they are few. He's talking about your teeth. Your teeth decay and fall out. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. He's talking about your eyes. They grow weak. They don't see as well as they used to. They're not as sharp as they were in your younger days. Verse 4, the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, sleep becomes evasive as you age. You get woken up by the slightest sounds and you can't go back to sleep. And the daughters of song are brought low. He's talking about your hearing. Your hearing fades. Verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. He's talking about, as you age, you become afraid of falling down. Your hair turns white. That's the, the almond tree blossoms. You can't jump like you used to. The grasshopper drags itself along. Your desire fails. You don't have the vitality and the energy and the enthusiasm and the joie de vivre, the joy of life that you once had. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. A picture of a person who's very old, hands shaking, body breaking down, wasting away, drawing near to death. And some of you are thinking, how did he get a hold of my journal? That's crazy. Has he been reading my text messages? Novelist Philip Roth says that old age is not a battle. Old age is a massacre. And all of us are moving toward this. It's inevitable. Young, old, black, white, rich, poor, male, female, gluten-free or gluten-full. We're all, we're all headed this way. Nobody escapes the effects of age and decay. Every one of us is wasting away. And the point we have to reckon with is if we don't have a hope, that's anchored in something beyond this life, beyond this physical outer body that's wasting away, that's going to be a crushing weight upon us. It's going to cause us to lose heart. And Paul's not exempt from the effects of, of sin, the effects of this decay on his outer self. He's experiencing it just as we are. 
But he isn't losing heart. Why is that? Because in the midst of the outer decay, Paul's inner nature is being renewed day by day. God is at work on the inside through communion with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, even as the outside decays. He's being renewed and restored in the image of God in his inner man. Oscar Wilde wrote a story called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And in the story, the very vain, very depraved Dorian has his portrait painted. When the portrait's finished, he looks at it and he laments. He says, how sad I shall grow old and horrible, but this picture will never get older. If it were I who was to always be young and the picture that was to grow old, I would give my soul for that. And Dorian gets his wish in the story. The portrait becomes a reflection of his aging and corrupting soul. And so as Dorian lives his life of sin, the portrait changes. The portrait begins to bear the, the signs and the consequences of his evil and his aging while his outward appearance, his personal appearance, doesn't age. His outer self stays fresh and ageless while his inner self, portrayed on the picture, continues to decay. And the contrast goes more and more stark day by day. What Paul is saying, for the Christian, the exact opposite of that is taking place. Even as your outer self is, is wasting away, as your athletic prowess is waning, as your ability to digest and handle certain foods is, is going away, as your max bench press is going down, at the same time, your inner self is being strengthened. It's being renewed day by day. You're becoming more holy you're becoming more alive to Jesus each day. I don't know about you, but this, this brings to mind people that I know, people in this church. We are blessed with, with some senior saints who really embody this, even as they, as they age, as they suffer the, the effects of growing old. Their inner selves are being renewed. The sort of people that you're around them and you see the weakness it's manifested outwardly, but when you hang around them, you feel like you've been spending time with Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? There's a woman in our church who I think embodies this. She is, she's advanced in years. It's very difficult for her to get around. But every time she sees me, she gives me a big hug. She tells me that she loves me. She reminds me that she prays for me every single day. I never walk away from a conversation with this woman without being encouraged and strengthened, being loved and cared for. She is a picture to me, a beautiful picture of inward renewal and inner power in the midst of outward weakness. I love how the Bible commentator David Garland summarized this point. He said, as Paul's outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, his inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Outwardly, we look more and more like Jesus in his sufferings. But inwardly, even as that, that takes place, we are becoming more and more like Jesus in his glorified state. So let me ask you, are you feeling the weight of your decay today? Can you say amen that your outer self is wasting away? Well, Paul wants to remind us that our hope is not in our physical Strength. It's in the inner work of renewal that Jesus is doing in us as we commune with Him, 
the Holy Spirit does His work, as we look to His Word, as we pray, as we confess our sins, as we rehearse the benefits of the Gospel, He is at work renewing us day by day. So the lie is, as long as I'm strong, I'm okay. But in Christ, the truth is, Jesus is renewing me inwardly day by day. So even if I'm wasting away outwardly, as long as I have Jesus, I'm okay. And I will not lose heart. The second lie Paul wants to move us away from is as long as I'm not suffering, I'm okay. And Paul makes a statement in verse 17 that you really have to know his backstory in order to appreciate. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What does he mean when he says light momentary affliction? Well, to understand what he means, we need to understand the suffering that Paul experienced. He suffered like crazy. The catalog of of Paul's sufferings that are chronicled for us in the New Testament will take your breath away. First, he was physically unattractive, right? He had a hunchback thing going on. He had had an eye condition that made it so he couldn't see. He He wasn't easy on the eyes. While he ministered in Asia, he suffered so greatly that he says he despaired of life itself. He thought he'd received the sentence of death. He was stoned and left for dead. He was beaten with rods three times. He was whipped with 39 lashes five times. He was attacked by angry mobs. He was undermined by sinful and immature and and wickedly behaving Christians. He was arrested and imprisoned without trial. He was shipwrecked three times, he says at the end of 2 Corinthians. And the conclusion of of one of those shipwrecks, he, he, he manages to swim out of the wreckage and pull himself up onto the shore, narrowly escaping death, only to have a viper bite onto his arm and wrap itself around him. I mean, you read this account of what Paul is suffering in Acts Acts chapter 27, and you just say, come on, are you serious with the suffering that this guy is going through? And it's, it's all of that affliction. It's all of those experiences that Paul, Paul wraps all up. He bundles it together, he looks at it, he considers it, and he calls it light. The Greek word is, is elephros, a weightless trifle. It's momentary, it's fleeting, it's nothing. How can he say that? Because Paul understands his temporal sufferings in light of eternal glory. Paul understood what we so often fail to understand, that there is a link between the suffering we experience and the eternal glory that waits for us. In this verse, those two things are linked in two ways, suffering and glory. First, suffering provokes us to consider glory. Suffering provokes us to consider glory. And it does so by reminding us that compared to the glory that will be revealed, our suffering is insignificant. Even if, it's not in, even if it's significant in a human sense, when you compare it to the glory that's coming, it's nothing. Let's talk about this for a minute. Paul says this weight of glory... Our Bibles say beyond all comparison. It's a translation of of the Greek phrase that's literally hyperbole unto hyperbole. So you know what what hyperbole is. It's a massive exaggeration. It's a fantastical overstatement for the sake of making a point. So hyperbole, a few examples would be, he's as strong as an ox. 
Or it took the power of the resurrection to wake me up from my Thanksgiving nap, right? Or something crazy like Paul Gilbert is a good athlete. Something so preposterous. Something so fantastical and obviously exaggerated. So as to make you feel the weight of the point that's being illustrated. What Paul is saying here is that there is a weight of glory that is so beyond all the beyondness that you can even imagine. It's so much greater than you can possibly fathom. And this should, this should provoke us. It should provoke us to wonder at what's ours in Jesus Christ. Guys, do you realize that you're going to be alive a thousand years from now? Do you realize that 10 million years from now, you're going to be alive? You're going to live eternally. You and I will be shining like the sun for billions of years, long after anyone can quite recall what a president or a Caesar used to be. That's what Tim Keller says. We don't even remember those things. In Christ, we will experience eternally blessings that we cannot even imagine and fathom here. Here's how Paul says it elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says that God seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying it's going to take the coming ages, eternity unto eternity for God to unfold for you how much He loves you. It's going to take thousands and thousands and millions and millions of years for Him to show it to you. He will never exhaust His ability to amaze us with His mercy and His kindness. That is glory. That's weighty. When you pile up all the sufferings you experience in this temporal, fleeting life on one side of the scale, and you set down the weight of glory on the other side of the scale, the scale breaks. It's not even worth comparing. Suffering reminds us that we hope for something that's far greater, far weightier, and far more lasting than the suffering that we experience in this life. And it provokes us to consider glory. Second, suffering prepares us to enjoy glory in a way that I don't fully understand and I can't wait to find out more about when I get to heaven. Paul is saying that the weight of eternal glory will somehow be weightier and more glorious and better because of the sufferings we experience in this life. Somehow it's going to be even more glorious because we've experienced these hardships and these sufferings. It'll be true in eternity, and in a sense it's true now as well. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, beginning at the end of verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do you think about your suffering? Is your affliction 
a barrier to your worship? Is it a problem that God needs to deal with before he can be good and worthy of your worship? Or is your suffering a conduit to your worship? Because God is actually working in the midst of it to bring you greater joy in Christ. More endurance, more character, more hope, and more future glory. The lie is, as long as I'm not suffering, I'm okay. In Christ, the truth is, suffering is preparing me for glory and preparing glory for me. So even if I'm suffering, if I have Jesus, I'm okay. And I won't lose heart. The third lie that Paul wants to move us away from in verse 18. As long as I'm seeing, I'm okay. And I think this is really important. I think this is really at the heart of of Paul's argument and what he wants to get across to us here. How do we get the strength to turn away from these lies? How do we get the strength to not lose heart in the midst of these difficult things that we experience? The strength comes to us as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I know this from my experience doing pastoral counseling, and I know this from my own experience of my own heart and my own personal discipleship. We trust far too much in a human perspective that is far too limited. We trust far too much in a human perspective that is far too limited. What does God say about our perspective on what he's doing, on his activity in relationship to his perspective on it? Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I'm wiser. I'm more powerful. I am high above anything that you can fathom. You cannot ponder my ways and my works. You know, a a human being questioning God, the created thing, questioning its creator, is, is the height of foolishness and arrogance. For us to stand in judgment over the God who who made the universe, it's like my five-year-old son critiquing the way I do our taxes or critiquing my guitar technique. It's just silly. It's just silly. I'm wiser than Titus is about these things. And God is wiser than we are. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is at work in unseen ways in your life and in the world? Suffering obscures this reality so quickly for us. Because suffering tends to shrink our world down to just what's right in front of us. That's why when we suffer, we tend to pray so much and so hard for God to change our circumstances. We get so limited. We can't pray about anything else. We can't pray for anything else. But God, please change my situation. And listen, it's not wrong to pray that. It's not wrong to ask God to deliver us from hardship. We should absolutely do that. But we must also pray with an awareness that God is with us and God is working even in the midst of that affliction. 
And that really brings us to the rub, to the tricky part of all this. That's the nature of hope. It's that it's unseen. We have to trust God beyond what our eyes can see and what our small, finite minds can fathom. Paul says it in Romans 8. He says that along with creation, we're groaning inwardly as we wait for the fullness of our redemption. And then verse 24, he says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Listen, sometimes when God grants it, we're able to see just a fraction of his activity, of the good that he's doing in the midst of our sufferings. We never get to see all of it. We never get the full picture on this side of eternity. But we have his promise that he is at work. He is with us. He's good. That he is sustaining us in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of of the things that we can't see and understand. Listen, I, I don't know all the reasons that you're suffering right now. My perspective is, is just as limited as yours to those things, but I do know this. Guys, glory is coming. God's coming is as sure as the dawn, and what your eyes can see today even the purposes and plans that God is working out in your life, even the blessings that you perceive today, it's just sign glory. That means it's glory that reflects a greater glory. It's meant to point you to the glory of Jesus that's shining forth from Him. We only see in the here and now a shadow of the substance that we'll one day see face to face. When Jesus Christ returns and He makes all things new. And He is going to make all things new. Even these decaying bodies that are wasting away. As you must know that one day the resurrected, glorified Jesus, who still bears in His body the marks of His crucifixion, one day He's going to reach out with a nail-scarred hand and He is going to gently wipe away every tear from your eye. He's going to give you a resurrection body. It's going to be glorified. It's going to be upgraded. It's no longer going to be weak. It's no longer going to be perishable. It's no longer going to be wasting away. You will live eternally with Him in that body, experiencing His blessings in a place where there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And all of that glory is waiting for you if you're a Christian. And it's a glory that is beyond all comparison. Though it is unseen now, it is certain. So in a sense, we we see that that Gold's Gym advertisement, it's right. In Christ, we are heading back. We are going to get back to our glory days. But it's not going to come through a training regimen or through self-discipline. It's going to be something that Jesus does when he raises us up on the last day. That's the unseen glory that God is taking us toward. We have a quote that hangs in our living room from C.S. Lewis that I look at all the time and meditate on. He says, There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Every time I read that quote, 
I think about our trip back from Uganda. Many of you know two years ago, two and a half years ago now, we adopted a little boy and a little girl. Um, my son, Titus, who was three at the time. My daughter, Eva, who was five at the time. And that quote always makes me think back to the return trip home. We spent about five weeks in Uganda completing the process. Then one late evening in July, we boarded a plane at the Entebbe airport to begin the 22-some-odd-hour journey home. It was really late when we got on the plane, and we'd been up since really early that morning. And so when we got on the plane, Titus uh, fell asleep immediately, but... When the flight attendant made the announcement that we needed to buckle our seatbelts, it was time to taxi to the runway. I leaned over to buckle Eva in, my five-year-old, who's now seven. And as I buckled her in, she looked back up at me, and immediately I registered the absolute terror in her eyes. And all of a sudden it hit me. As an orphan who lived in utter destitution, Eva had never been buckled into anything in her life. And you compound the buckling with this airplane that's taking off and carrying her at speeds she's never experienced before. Air pressure changing all new experiences for my little girl. And in her confusion, she spent the next several hours of the flight weeping loudly, looking at me with pain and confusion and utter betrayal in her eyes. And at the time, she barely spoke any English. And so I couldn't communicate to her the reassurance that I wanted so desperately to be able to give her. I wanted to be able to say, sweetheart, I know you don't understand what's going on. I know that you don't see what's happening right now. But can you trust me right now? I'm your father, and I love you, and I'm taking you home. And and home is incredible. You don't have any idea what's waiting for you when we get home. Home is where you've got grandparents and aunties and uncles who are ready to spoil you rotten. Home is where you have a church family who already loves you and has been praying for you and has been giving generously to make it possible for me to come and get you. Home is where you have two sisters who have been ready to be your best friends and to love you and share all their stuff with you since the moment they heard you existed. And home is where you have a mommy and a daddy who will care for you and love you and pray for you and tell you about Jesus and who will never abandon you will never forsake you. And all the poverty and all of the hopelessness and destitution of your former life as an orphan, all of the abandonment, all of the pain and suffering, you're leaving that behind forever. You're going home. And I know you don't understand your circumstances right now. I know you don't understand the seatbelt. You don't understand the airplane. It's a crushingly hard thing for you to understand. But what you don't see is that this experience is the necessary means by which your father is taking you home. So please hang on. Trust me, I'm wise and I love you. And as I went through that experience, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I understood in a way I never understood before. That's the exact same reassurance our Heavenly Father wants to give us in the midst of our sufferings. My son, my daughter, I love you and there are far better things ahead than anything we leave behind, no matter how difficult it is to leave those things behind. So trust me to take you to those better things. 
even when you can't see how I'm doing it. The lie is, as long as I'm seeing, I'm okay. But in Christ, the truth is, Jesus is at work in the unseen realm, in unseen ways. So even if I can't see what Jesus is doing, if I have him, I'm okay. And I won't lose heart. Some of you need to hear the Apostle Paul say to you this morning, we do not lose heart. And you need to hear him tell you why we don't. Because for some of you, you just endured a brutal Thanksgiving that was filled with difficult reminders of your frailty, reminders that that person that you're missing, you're not going to get them back until glory. Reminders of your failings as a husband or as a wife. Reminders of your child who has turned away from the Lord and has turned away from you. Reminders that you are, this very day, this very moment, wasting away. And Christmas is coming, and you're looking ahead, and the forecast just looks like more of the same. And if that's where you are, the Apostle Paul wants to say to you, Jesus wants to say to you, do not lose heart. Don't stop looking at Jesus. Your citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven you are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day transform your lowly, decaying, wasting away body to be like His glorious body. Until that day comes, until that day when faith gives way to sight and prayer gives way to praise, He's renewing you day by day through communion with Him. He is preparing glory for you through your sufferings and He is at work in unseen ways. But one day you will see, Christian, that all of God's promises to you are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's a promise that can give us hope. With that promise, we cannot lose heart. Amen? Would you pray with me?